so um gonna start by playing this video um and then we'll get into the content from the beginning of western speculation about the orient the one thing the orient could not do was represent itself Evidence of the Orient was credible only after it had passed through the refining fire of the Orientalist work. Edward Said, Palestinian intellectual, literary theorist, historian of the colonial narrative. Said explained how colonialism works, not just through armies, but through literature, not just through conquest, but through anthropology, not just through oppression, but justified through narrative. He showed how the West painted a picture of the East. Snake charmers, belly dancers, thieves, the exotic, the sensual, the depraved. Said saw it in 19th century Western literature, and you can see it across modern culture. Switch on the news, read the newspapers, look at the images. What stories are you being told? Us versus them. The rational versus the irrational. Civilization versus barbarism. Africans, corrupt despots, starving victims. Latin Americans, drug lords, football players, dictators, crabs. Terrorists, misogynists, Asians, software engineers, religious fanatics. How does it feel to be fixed, captured, framed? Think of Orientalism as a lens. Use it when you read the media. Spot the stereotype. Decode the fiction. Unlearn the myth. Okay, so um, I thought that was a really powerful um, recap for the concept that we discussed last week of power, knowledge, and discourse, right? So, because um, the video ultimately was, was talking about how, how stereotypes uh, reinforce, um, you know, um, binaries of us, them, irrational, um, irrational civilization, barbarianism, right? Um, and really gets at the question again of who controls the narrative, what lens is being used to tell a story, and what stereotypes do we um, see being reinforced in the media, right? Um, because it's, it's discourses operate through not just armies, but literature, conquest, uh, not just conquest, but anthropology, not just oppression, but narratives, right? So stories ultimately are very, very important in how um, we come to know and understand the world, right? And I think that's, that, um, that really ties in nicely to the TED talk by 
um, Achidi, the danger of the single story, right? Because she talks about how power shapes which stories we tell and how we tell them. Um, Adichie explains that if we only hear about a people, place, or situation from one point of view, we risk accepting one experience as the whole truth, right? So that's the danger of the single story. Um, defining an experience based on one account gives us an incomplete and damaging understanding of other people, right? And she also has her own definition of power. Um, and it's for her, it's the ability not just to tell the story of another person, but to make it the definitive story of that person, right? So that is what the stereotype would be, right? When it becomes just that one, um, one single story, right? And the problem, she says, with stereotypes is not that they are untrue, but that they are incomplete. They make one story become the only story, right? Um, and she talks about how uh, we, as you know, consumers of literature, of media, we, we must seek out diverse perspectives. And in turn, writers and, and media creators, they need to tell their own stories. They need to give platforms for more unique stories, right? Because telling the stories that, um, about you know, unique Black experiences, hopes and fears, helps break down the power of cliches and stereotypes, right? Um, and I think as uh, children especially, um, we are incredibly impressionable and vulnerable to, to stereotypes, to the single story. But I think even now as adults, we're often very, very quick to believe uh, one perspective and one story without really bothering to listen to others, right? And she, she talks about, again, how that's very, very dangerous because it perpetuates stereotypes, right? And it, it's an incomplete understanding of, of people. Right, um, and hearing, especially for, um, for Black people in, in Canada and the US, um, hearing just one story contributes to the ongoing dehumanization of Black people, right? Um, and she says, stories can break the dignity of a people, but stories can also repair that broken dignity, right? But um, I really want to ask that question, this question of what, it, what do you think Canada's single story is, right? Because I think when Canadians are really quick to say that Canada doesn't have a problematic racist history, right? Um, we celebrate and tout our multiculturalism. Um, we wear it like a badge of honor here um, in Canada. Uh, right, and we're very, very proud to be, you know, Canada, we have a, a, a cultural mosaic, right? We're not like the Americans, we're, we're not a melting pot system, right? Um, and, uh, you know, the Canadian mosaic allows everyone to uh, celebrate their differences, right? Diversity is our strength, is a very common um, phrase that, that's often um, touted around, right? Um, but, you know, it's very easy to believe, I think, this single story, right? But then when you actually look at some of our history, we do, like, do some probing and you realize that actually kind of deeply problematic because um, immigration history especially, um, like, you see that binary opposition's working because immigrants and racialized people, they were classified as uh, filthy, immoral, lazy, diseased, right? And inassimilable, and corrupting of the white community, um, while white people exalted themselves as clean, orderly, lawful, healthy, and civilized, and hence worthy of citizenship. 
Um, and that's from a scholar called, uh, named uh, Sunaira Thobani. Um, and this, you know, that sense of superiority um, historically um, justified uh, racist practices like um, harassment of migrants, um, the petitioning for governments to curb um, Asian and black immigration to Canada. Um, there were organized raids into racialized neighborhoods, right? Uh, segregation, redlining of um, black and white, of black neighborhoods, right? Um, and so a lot of policies became um, implemented that limited ac access to citizenship, right? Um, and I think it's um, interesting because in Canada, multiculturalism kind of um, paint, gives us a very rosy um, tint to our history. Um, and and um, it doesn't, it, we're not able to see it, I think, with, with like clear eyes because, um, because of multiculturalism, right? It kind of like um, makes, our, makes our history more um, digestible for the public, you know, for public consumption in that it's not, you know, as, as violent as, um, or as uh, horrific as the United States, right? Um, and so, but, you know, in reality, we, we had very, very similar um, historical um, processes happening here in terms of migration and in terms of slavery as well. Um, and multiculturalism only came um, and as a national policy when like the need arose for, for the labor market, right? When we needed um, more immigration um, in Canada. And You know, this, so, so um, the skin we're in, pulling back the curtain on racism in Canada. Um, this was a documentary that featured Toronto journalist Desmond Cole, who wrote an award-winning story for the Toronto Life, um, The Skin I'm In. I've been interrogated by police more than 50 times, all because I'm Black. Um, and in this um, story, he documents the personal interactions he's had with police, first in Kingston, then in Toronto, and um, according to a Toronto Star investigation, because he was black, Cole was 17 times more likely than a white person to be carded in Toronto, um, or you know, to be stopped and asked to, su to supply personal information by the police. Um, and so this documentary um, really highlights some important black history in Canada that many people don't know about, right? Because we have that very single story of Canada that's permeated into our brains and in, in society, right? That Canada doesn't have a racist history. We don't have a problematic um, history um, like the US does, right? We, we celebrate culture, we celebrate diversity. Diversity is our strength, right? Uh, multiculturalism is our strength. Um, but then I think this, this film kind of uh, brings to our attention what's being left out out of, out of our history. Um, the filmmaker, uh, Charles Officer, for, um, for example, he says that he never learned about um, Africville when he was in school, right? And um, Africville was, um, helped to create housing projects in Halifax, right? Cleared them out. Um, and it really, um, the system called, the system that, um, 
the system um, that's operating today is replicating the actions that were happening in the past as well, right? So um, when that's it, it, the first case of, of racial gentrification essentially was, was Africville, right? Um, and slavery in Canada, I think, is, is largely erased because of the climate that we're in here. Um, but the reality is that we did have slavery in Canada. Um, and, you know, um, just because, you know, like the U.S., they have in the, in the South, they were able to, you know, the, we don't have like climate to hold plantations here, but Black people, enslaved Black people in Canada went through it strenuous long hours um, of work at the beck and call of, of white people. Um, and the smaller numbers of, of slaves here has allowed Canada to consistently erase this slave history, but it still exists, right? And unfortunately, there is an astounding lack of data of the stories of Black people in Canada, where to the point where people believe that there's no, um, that there's no slavery here. Um, Um, Desmond also talks about um, carding, right? The practice of carding, um, which is the police practice of documenting the personal details and encounters with citizens, usually with no charges laid. Um, and this was um, a practice that first developed in 1957, right? Um, and it's gone through many iterations, many names. Um, the first being called suspect cards, right? To document and forward information about people of interest to detectives. Um, and then over the years, the card became a form. Um, then later it became a report. Um, and now by 2015, it's a it's community engagement, right? But the but people are still calling it carding because that that's what stuck over time, right? And still, um, random stops of citizens and collection of personal data, um, including details of physical appearance, address, contact information, that is allowed. That is legal, right? Um, and although a new rule banning random carding by police in Ontario came into effect. Um, like community advocates still say that doesn't go far enough because police officers are still allowed to ask for information while doing a traffic stop, arresting or detaining someone and um, exec uh, executing a warrant or investigating a specific crime. So, and usually when, when these things happen, um, it's racialized both black and indigenous folk that are primarily targeted the most. And so Desmond, calls, Desmond Cole says, I have been stopped, if not always carted, at least 50 times by the police in Toronto, Kingston, and across Southern Ontario. Because of this unwanted scrutiny, that discriminatory surveillance, I am a prisoner in my own city. So, um, after Canadian slavery, Black people were, continuously seen as um, property and labor to be exploited, and they were viewed as threats to be monitored and contained. Um, and Black criminality, um, which is, I think, you know, still, still something that we're, you know, something that we're dealing with today, um, is historically always been very subjective, and it still is today is what I mean to, what I mean to allude to. Um, because back then, black people escaping enslavement was considered, that was considered to be a criminal act, right? Um, and it was also considered to be a mental health issue by white doctors. Um, and so, 
um, Robin, um, Robert Maynard says, criminal is in the eye of the beholder or rather in the hands of the lawmaker, right? So again, who is telling the story? Who holds the power? Who's deciding what is criminal and what is um, law abiding, right? Um, because the on like criminalization of poverty um, and survival creates a double bind of systemic oppression. Um, racialized groups are discriminated against in school, in housing, work and pay, so that survival um, in our society becomes very difficult. Um, mm -hmm. And so when groups are, that are, have been historically and continuously pushed out, out of the formal economy, um, when they turn to underground um, economies to survive, they're labeled as criminal, right? Welfare frauds, they're called immigration frauds, they're, they're labeled as drug dealers. Um, um, but corporate and white collar criminality goes unpunished and unpublic, um, but even though it costs far more in society, right? So um, I think what's really important to recognize here is that media and political rhetoric in Canada. Um, so the portrayal, ongoing portrayal of black people as criminals and linked with criminality um, feeds lawmaking, um, which directs um, on, the, on the ground policy practices like carding, like surveillance in low income housing areas. Um, and then of course, that feeds into further rhetoric of the media coverage of arrests, right? That, that's, that black people are, are criminals. So it's like a, a, a never-ending circle, um, a loop, right? That invents black criminality and uses this construction to rationalize and justify violence against black people. So um, ultimately the legacies of slavery in Canada live on in our institutions, right? Because black people have always, since, since the beginning of slavery in Canada, been seen as, as criminal, as, as um, as barbaric, as you know, um, uncivil, and uh, this has perpetuated current day black poverty and unemployment, racial profiling, law enforcement violence, incarceration, immigration detention, de deportation, exploitive migrant labor practices, disproportionate child removal, and low graduation rates. Um, and this is all impacting the black community um, so that they are, you know, and disproportionately um, impoverished and uh, struggle to succeed in our society. So, um, out of sight, out of mind. Um, everything we were never taught about Canada's prison systems. So um, the article that we that we read, um, it talks about Canada's prison systems, and it highlights, I think, four uh, or five main points that I that I really wanted to bring up. Um, the first being, in 2016, Canada's crime rates hit a 45-year low, but paradoxically, at the same time, incarcerations rates hit an all-time high, right? Um, and so um, <laughs> that's, that, that doesn't make any sense, right? When you actually 
think about that, right? Because if crime rates are low, incarceration rates should be low as well, right? So what is going on here? What is the, what's, what's missing here, right? Like, um, and number two, majority of people incarcerated in Canada are on remand, denied bail and incarcerated in advance of their trial and are legally innocent. Um, so that means that they are innocent, that they are uh, people who have not been, that, uh, not been proven guilty um, in, in Canadian prisons for years, right? Because they've been denied bail um, and they're awaiting trial, right? So that's majority of people incarcerated in Canada. Um, yeah, and then number three, incarcerated people have an internationally recognized right to education. Yet people on remand are left entirely without access. Um, education in, in, in prison systems, that it's severely, severely underfunded is what um, the intersectional analyst article tells us, right? Um, more and more money is being given um, for addiction programs and for, um, um, another thing I can't recall right now, but very, very little is given um, for education. Um, but this is something that um, incarcerated people have nationally recognized right to. Um, so, and yet in Canada, very, very little is um, being, being provided for, for inmates. Um, then in, Can in Canada, with the overrepresentation of racialized communities, here reflects our country's racial profiling and over-policing of Black and Indigenous people. Um, I think um, the, 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 stat, the articles mentioned that Black people overall represent about 2% of our whole national population and yet um, are disproportionately, like overly represented um, in our prison systems, right? They are predominantly uh, racialized folks that are that are being locked up, right? And un, and um, unnecessary and excessive force is also used um, disproportionately against racialized inmates and those who suffer from mental health issues, right? Um, and so I think what this article um, really highlights is, you know, what is not being brought to our attention? Um, what is being kept out of sight, out of mind, right? Um, so this quote, um, we have collectively sub subscribed to an out of sight, out of mind policy for the nearly 40,000 people incarcerated at the provincial, territorial and federal levels in Canada. Over one out of every thousand adults leading to a lack of public knowledge about the inhumane conditions in federal and provincial prisons, right? So there is so much injustice going on in Canada, in our, like, in our cities, that we are not being kept aware of, right? Um, where is the money, you know, because prisons are being poorly funded um, and again, a lack of public knowledge about the inhumane conditions um, really, really, you know, puts it out of sight, out of mind, right? Um, so the, the, the article um, talks about some, some really, depressing statistics, right? Like suicide rates are seven times higher in prison than in the general population. 47% um, of prison suicides took place in solitary confinement. Um, solitary confinement is 
the the UN says that um, anything more than 15 days is is wrong, is inhumane, and yet um, people are being kept um, in in confinement for much much longer than that. 36% of those inmates have been held in segregation for more than 120 days. Um, and, you know, that, again, that sensory deprivation, that some of those, that, that's what we talked about last time, that's really, really makes it difficult for people to rehabilitate um, themselves and, and try to, you know, overcome their, their, their barriers and, and, and their struggles, right? Um, there's no learning opportunities to better themselves. Right. Um, and, you know, but if if, you know, if we made an investment into our systems, a one million dollar investment in incarceration prevents uh, 350 crimes. But in prison education, it would prevent 600 crimes. Right. So it's really a matter of um, what needs our attention, what needs um, our 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 money. Right. Because what th th these are. Out of sight, out of mind, um, prevents us from actually seeing these issues as um, as human rights issues. I think is the point. Um, so now I want to go into the making connections part. Um, and play um, a couple clips um, um, of uh, Avatar The Last Airbender. So just for some um, general context, um, right now um, Avatar Aang and his uh, friends have um, entered um, the great city of Ba Sing Se, which is um, one of the only remaining Earth Kingdom city that has not been overtaken by the colonial force of the Fire Nation. Right? Um, and so they've come with some urgent information for the king regarding the war. Bossing say, um, <laughs> when they when the crew arrived, right, they were saying, "Whoa, what?" A, they were thinking, "What a grand city! It's huge. It looks amazing, right?" The whole the crew is wowed. Um, but then, as they tour, they notice all the walls, all both the literal walls and the metaphorical walls which prevents citizens from speaking the truth and, and, and holding power to truth, right? Um, you're, you are in Boston Say now. Everyone is safe here. There's no war in Boston Say. Um, and this quote, oh, Boston Say has many walls. There are the ones outside protecting us and the ones inside that help maintain order, right? Um, and so metaphorical and physical, uh, um, both literal walls and metaphorical walls, right? Um, how do they prevent us from understanding um, what is going on in our world? How do they prevent us from knowing the truth, right? Um, and are we able to parse through the, the metaphorical walls, um, the filters, the lens, right, to really understand what is going on in our current society, right? So in um, when they were touring, um, Judy is saying when they're in the uh, the walls uh, create division in Boston say so the lower ring the middle ring and the upper ring right um, and so speaking about the lower ring um, Judy says this is where our newest arrivals live as well as our craftsmen and artisans people that work with their hands it's so quaint and lively 
you do want to watch your step though. But Katara immediately notices the, dis the, the, the discrepancies between her, um, Judy's words and what's actually going on, like the realities of the situation, right? And she says, why do they have all these poor people blocked off in one part of the city, right? Um, and all of these walls begin to frustrate Aang and his friends because they know the truth. They have lived experience that tells them that there is a war, there are problems, right? Um, there is a, a really, really harsh reality that's going on in their world, right? That's, that's um, threatening the livelihood of, um, of the people in Ba Sing Se. And they're able to see how the people of Ba Sing Se are kept in a bubble, right? Which ultimately harms them and keeps them um, from understanding and knowing the truth and um, keeps them under oppressive systems, right? So um, I thought that was um, a really apt metaphor for, for Canada because we can start to think about what kind of physical and metaphorical walls exist in Canada that prevent us from knowing our true history, from truly understanding systemic injustice, right? Um, and what would Jesus do? Um, the biblical video that we sent out um, also um, illustrates systemic injustice and systemic injustice and oppression through visuals of walls, towers, borders, mantles, um, pedestals, etc. Um, and speaks about how historically in the Bible and um, in our world history, like our recent history, people have been using power um, to exploit others and to serve their own needs. Um, but God tells us again and again and again that this is wrong, okay? Um, and Jesus actively sought out to help the most marginalized in society. He spoke out against systemic injustice and calls us to do the same, right? Um, and Jeremiah 22 verse 3 says, this is what the Lord says, do what is just and right. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor, the one who has been wronged. Do no wrong or violence to the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed blood in this innocent place. Um, Matthew 12, he also says, um, we are supposed, when we see um, injustice happening, we are supposed to voice it and, and, and bring it up to the attention of, of people, right? Um, that's what Jesus calls us to do, right? Um, the spirit, right? He says, um, he, I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not call or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets, but a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not stuff out until he has brought justice through to victory. And in his name, the nations will put out their hope. Um, Sheldon, do you want to um, read us an, um, another Bible passage explaining how, um, well, you can explain that, how Jesus spoke out? Yes. Um, so uh, this particular set of Bible verses is taken from uh, Luke chapter 11, um, namely verse, um, pretty much from verse 37 to, 40, uh, to 47 are kind of the core pieces of it. Um, but they're commonly known as the, the seven woes, although I believe, according to the numbering in Luke, it's actually eight. Um, anyway, that's a minor detail. But essentially what Jesus does is he serves to call out the hypocrisy that he saw in the world at the time. 
So as you all know, I'm sure everyone's familiar with these two groups of people who existed at the time called the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right? Everybody? Looking good? Yes. <laughs> um, so the Pharisees and the Sadducees, um, just to give you a bit of political context, I'm a bit of, bit of a history nerd, so I'll explain this here. So um, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were two sects of the Jewish community. They namely differed on their opinions on the Torah. Um, one group favored the oral Torah, which were the Pharisees, um, meaning the traditional law, the traditional law of the priests and um, the essentially the right of inheritance of the Jewish monarchy. So Herod and his um, royal lineage. And the Sadducees were what were known as the Hellenistic Jews who believed in the written Torah. And they essentially believed that Jews should eventually become assimilated to Greek culture and integrate themselves with the Roman Empire. Now, both of these ideas Jesus ultimately rejects. He says that both the Pharisees and the Sadducees are wrong because they, they focus on the wrong elements of piety. You know, he, the, these people um, believe a lot essentially in public shows of faith with very little substance to their faith. And what's very importantly as well, is he rejects the legitimacy of the Jewish monarchy and the Roman Empire. He says all of these people are, secret, are, are engaged in secret dealings behind the scenes to deprive the people of Israel of their place in righteousness. And I mean, we can see this very clearly in the gospels when Jesus is on trial. Um, when he is about to be for crucifixion, you'll notice that Annas and Caiaphas, who were the uh, priests and the, well, Caiaphas, who was the high priest and Annas, who was his father-in-law, um, they pass Jesus back and forth between them and Pilate, you know? The political context of the time was that, oh, you know, the Jewish people are fighting against the Roman Empire. You know, the, the great Jewish leaders, the temple leaders are fighting against the powers of the Roman Empire. And yet we see the reality that all of these various peoples in high positions of power are essentially manipulating the people into petty infighting between each other. Now, why exactly does that political context matter? If we look at Luke chapter 11, you'll see Jesus says a, a, a varying set of phrases that begin with, woe to you Pharisees. And he specifically calls out this group of people that defends the monarchy, that defends this system of collaboration with the Roman oppressors. And he, um, I, I would uh, bring you to the attention of, um, Luke chapter 11, verse 42, which says, Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter with leaving, without leaving the former undone. You know, there is a, there is a higher sense of justice. You know, we always understand um, when we show up to church and we give our set tenth of our, our income, or we, we make very public shows of our faith. You know, I, I would ask everyone to remember the parable of, the, of Jesus speaking to the young man, the rich young man, where these big shows of charitable giving, these big shows of righteousness in public matter very little if we do not have a thirst for justice inside of us. If, if us following Jesus is devoid of a deeper sense of justice, a deeper sense of combating oppression, of combating unfair social systems um, of essentially looking at the marginalized peoples who exist around us and uplifting them to a, to a position of, of, of social justice, then we are not practicing things fairly. We're, we're behaving as hypocrites, essentially. 
Um, another good phrase, if we if we hop a little bit further down to to verse forty six, um, it it is that um, Jesus replied, "And you experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you, because you build tombs for the prophets, and yet it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what the ancestors did." And yet you killed the prophets and you built their tombs. Woe to you experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You have, you yourselves have not entered and you have hindered those who were entering. So essentially we understand these people, you know, I mean, this clip from Avatar is a great example of that. The very, the very physical presence, the symbol of walls. It is what these structures of power do. They, they limit people. They limit the vast majority of people from accessing those, those spaces, those forums of power, from having a seat at the table. And this is essentially exactly what the Pharisees were doing. The Pharisees would go out into the street and preach about their own righteousness and preach about the necessity of rebelling against the Roman Empire, the necessity of performing all the temple rituals down to the, to the minutest detail. And yet, in, in their private dealings, they were in cahoots with the Romans. They were turning the, the groups of the people in the, in the court of, es, of Israel against each other. You know, they, 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 they claim to uphold the prophets. They claim to uphold the law, but they shame them in their everyday actions. They shame them in the way they apply the law. They used the law to, again, preach their own righteousness, but not to uplift the people out of the circumstances that both the Roman occupation and the Herodian monarchy had put them into. So when we talk about, you know, when, when we talk about what it is to be Christian, you know, these particular verses, these seven woes, the warnings against hypocrisy remind us not to become Pharisees. You know, they essentially remind us that there is a, there is a, a walk to walk and a talk to talk that need to go hand in hand. And if we, again, make big shows of our faith with very little actual work on the ground, if we do not, you know, you know we, we load people with burdens of the law, you know, we load people down with various ways of nitpicking at the law and, and specific ways on how to be a pious Christian. But we miss the entire message of Christianity. We miss the, the essence of the Gospels in doing so. Then we, in ourselves, are failing the people who we preach to. We're failing the people who we live with. So, yeah, I think, you know, as Roshni set up so perfectly, this... This is, you know, one of those instances where we preach inclusion and we preach the love of God, and yet we erect walls to separate the marginalized from the kingdom of heaven. That is us doing the work of Pharisees in God's kingdom today. Yeah, and I think when, when Jesus says, woe to you, experts in the law, woe to you, Pharisees, right? He's like literally calling them out, right? He's calling out the lawmakers and the Pharisees, the ones who are in charge, the one who holds power and saying, hey, you should be doing better, right? And if we're supposed to be exemplifying Jesus, right? And, and following in his path and, and walking in his light, we should also do the same, right? Um, and yeah, that's what, yeah. Um, so now we're ready to move into the discussion portion of, of the seminar. Um, and so I want to invite everyone to participate in any way that you feel comfortable. Um, that could be, you know, through video, audio. Um, you could please make use of the chat, put all of your comments in the chat. 
um, any questions you have, um, any answers to these discussion questions. You can also uh, submit questions anonymously to Ruben Matthews um, and um, he'll read them out without mentioning who, who is saying the comment. And so we'll just get the content. Um, so some discussion questions to start us off, right? What is Canada's single story? How is Canada, Canadian history and racism pro-trade compared to the US, right? Um, uh, when watching the documentary and reading the article, what surprised you about the Black experience in Canada, about prison system? Um, what kind of physical and metaphorical walls exist in Canada that prevent us from truly understanding systemic injustice? And how do you think Jesus would act now if he faced what we are dealing with now? The chat is open. What do you what do, what do people think? 